The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been looking at the Buddhist teachings on karma, and I mentioned last week how there's a lot of baggage about karma, and mostly, you know, it's just totally understandable that when we learn these different frames, these different ways of viewing, we're going to interpret them from our, you know, the view that our mind basically lives with. So we're going to think about karma in terms of me. And what does it mean about me? And that's why, like in popular culture, there's a lot of maybe even obsession, but certainly interest about like, who was I in the past? What did I do in the past that this is happening to me now? Or who will I be in the future? And, you know, there's part of this is definitely seen in the ancient texts, Buddhist texts, and just generally in Buddhist culture. But when you look at how the Buddha used these teachings, it was much more immediate, right? as, a, as there are all of the Buddhist teachings. It's basically, there's no practice that doesn't involve the present moment, right? There's no other place to practice. So thinking we're a good Buddhist or thinking that where this or that isn't practice. Practice is when the mind is actually interested in the way it is right now, not in our thought about now, our thought about who I am or what's happening, but in a more direct and immediate observation or opening to. And so I mentioned last week that one of the real art in practice is to stabilize the awareness enough so that there can be some continuity of mindful awareness. And it's only then when we, the mind, starts to see how things unfold and basically how the mind gets at times into tied up into knots, gets tight, gets heavy, and how at other times, as we're as the mind is observing moment by moment, we see an opening up, a freeing up, like uh, the aversion in the mind. The mind sort of steps outside of that aversion, that hate, that anger, whatever it might be that's clouding the mind or oppressing the mind. And if we don't, if we're not observing in this somewhat continuous way, we basically don't learn, the mind doesn't learn how the heck did I end up in such a dark, heavy, contracted, negative, aversive, whatever space? You actually have to see how you get there. And the same thing with, like even something more you know, interesting to just people beginning meditation, for those who are starting out, is like you have a good sit and the mind settles down and there's some calm and some peace. Well, it would be really nice to know how the mind did that. Was it just magic that all of a sudden that's it after sitting, you know, most days for the last three months? But that sit was a good sit. Wanting that good sit to happen again the next time you sit won't help. It will actually make it worse, right? Sitting there wanting to have the kind of sit you had yesterday is not one of the causes that will lead to that peaceful sit. 
But if there was some mindful awareness, some continuous awareness, then the mind would know how that happened because everything unfolds in a lawful and conditional way. But the question is, is there a knowing mind, a comprehending mind, comprehending the lawful unfolding of causes and conditions so that now that mind knows, to some degree at least, how the heck I got there, how the mind got there, that heavy place, that light place. And I mentioned this last week, it's, it's really the opposite of being helpless. The more, even if what you initially see a lot from this continuity of awareness is how your mind gets itself into trouble, you know, obsessing about this, worrying about this, scheming, whatever it might be, and the mind begins to see how, oh yeah, this is getting tight, this is leading to more tightness or more agitation. Even if that's all we're seeing, that's quite liberating to know what doesn't help, what doesn't work, what agitates the mind, what obscures the mind or weighs the mind down. Because even though we've seen what doesn't work, then the mind knows if I could just stop doing that, I bet it would be different. It's not like we're out of the woods, but we know a lot that we didn't know before we saw that. I mean, in other places in life, like when I think about my cat, you know, when it scratches on the furniture, how many times do I need to nail it with the squirt gun before it knows not to do that? But how many times does our mind go down a pathway that leaves our body and mind all tight and tangled, but we don't learn? Because later that day, maybe even a few minutes later, we do the same thing, the mind does the same thing, day after day, many times a day, regurgitating, acting out the same mental pattern. So from, a, from the perspective of the Buddhist teachings, that happens not because we're evil, not because we're stupid. It happens because there wasn't a mind that had continuous awareness that clearly saw, understood, oh yeah, when the mind is relating in this way, when the mind does this, then the mind falls in a hole like that. That's just how it is. And then when the mind does something like something else, like not doing that, then something else happens. Not that. You plant an acorn, you get an oak tree. You don't get an apple tree. It's lawful. So when the mind does these things, relates in these ways, there are predictable results. And when we catch ourselves, as I still do, so I'm, I'm not putting myself in a different place here, when I catch myself, catch the mind doing something that leads to my body and mind being tight and, and kind of clouded and not wielding, like a mind that's not capable of doing what it needs to do in life because it's, entangled or confused or burdened, weighed down. What, what I'd like to dawn on the mind is 
this confidence. This can be figured out. But what we tend to do is just like rely on hopeful thinking like, well, don't do that again, or I hope this doesn't happen again. But we don't need to hope. We just need to know how we got here and then not do that. In the way that we've avoided a lot of things in life because we got burnt and then we didn't do it again. You know, we, oh yeah, I'm not going to do that again. But the, the amazing thing is about cause and effect, about karma, is that although we're pretty good at reading stuff around us, we're not so good at bringing that same careful attention to the activity of the mind. Like, even people who are really unskillful and unhappy, and people maybe we'd call a bully or brute or somebody with really um, unwholesome values, even they, within their own frames, can be very effective at a watching cause and effect and set in motion what they want to set in motion. But the piece they're missing is that self-reflection that would be interested, like, is this making me happier? I mean, bring to mind some of the despots, you know, the people we read about in the news, people that we, you know, generally would consider, like, you know, not being good for the world and not being good for themselves. And imagine if they were, they had cultivated this mindful awareness so they could be reflective in this way and basically, in a continuous way, be considering, how's this working for me? Like, is this really setting in motion the causes for happiness and a more resonant kind of love? and a more profound release or ease in the heart, more sense of real belonging. Because people will will change if we're reflective in that way. And in this way, Buddhism is different because instead of this idea of trying to be a good person, we undertake this training, this reflective, mindful awareness, and then with that, we will change for the better, right? And and this is really helpful to keep us from judging people we think are not very good in any way we might think that they're not very good, is that they're just a human being like we're a human being, but for whatever reason, there hasn't been as much of this reflective awareness or this condition. I mean, there are people who are basically acting in ways that lead to their happiness and not causing unhappiness for others, but they could be just acting out of habit. They just happen to have good parents or good upbringing or good genetics or whatever it is. But things can change because they're not, their relatively smooth path through life was just by chance, like maybe something got set in motion in the past, and so they have it pretty easy. But that could get disturbed, and they wouldn't know how to recover because they haven't built this reflective awareness. You see that. Some people 
you know, have the so-called perfect life until something happens. You know, they get cancer or the perfect relationship they had turns out not to be so perfect and somebody leaves or the kid becomes a teenager or <laughs> or the community around them changes. They get older and they don't seem to fit anymore because, you know, culture keeps evolving. And if they don't, haven't cultivated this reflective awareness, then they're sort of stuck with the conditioning they have. They don't have a mechanism for transformation. So it doesn't matter if you have like relatively wholesome conditioning or relatively unwholesome conditioning. The really relevant factor is do we have a mechanism, a feedback mechanism? And that's really what this mindful awareness is. And so if somebody asks you, like one answer you can give to somebody, if they say, why do you meditate? You can say, well, I'm, I'm just developing these mental skills to be present in a relaxed, non-judging and continuous way so that the wisdom in the mind so that the mind can study the causes for peace and the causes for dis-ease and agitation. And in studying that, it's like the mind is immediately informed. It, It becomes immediately more wise or intelligent about the causes for peace and the causes for stress. It's like you can't forget. If you touched a stove and got burnt, it's like, can you make yourself forget that? No, it just becomes part of the mind. Oh yeah, when things are glowing red, there's a good chance they're hot. You know, it's like you can't take that out of the mind because the mind was, to whatever degree, aware. So I read this last week, but it's worth repeating. Famous passage from the Buddhist teachings, I am the owner of my karma, karma meaning intentional action, or even more specifically, the quality of intention, the quality of motivation that leads to thinking, leads to speaking, leads to actions. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born out of my karma, related to my karma, abide, supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Now that sounds like a heavy trip. And it's kind of interesting because those of you who've been around for a while know that in the Buddhist teachings, there's a real emphasis that whatever this is, this mind-body happening here, it's not self. It's nature, right? So this is very interesting. There is karma. There is this conditional, lawful unfolding. But it doesn't belong to anybody as we think. This is why karma gets misunderstood. So it really matters how we show up. It really matters to be with as much continuity of awareness as we can muster It really matters to be paying attention in this relaxed, non-judging, remember that, non-judging way, this kind way, to basically see the causes for stress and the causes for the release of stress, but not 
for reasons of self-obsession, like, I don't want to be stressed. I mean, initially, that's exactly why we pay attention. That's why people show up at Common Ground, is because they're stressed or because they're trying to make their life work better, and it makes sense to them to have the continuity of awareness will help, like to pay a more close, careful attention. How could that hurt? Of course that's going to help. It will help. So initially it's a self-project. But interestingly, the more we study karma, the conditional nature, cause and effect, the more the mind is able to observe the conditional unfolding in subtler and subtler ways, including how the view in the mind is affecting how things unfold. So if I'm here being mindfully aware, but from the view of, I really want to be mindfully aware, I really want to see the causes for stress, I really want to see the causes for the release of that stress. In that subtle and and stable and non-judging awareness, the mind, the wisdom of the mind begins to pick up that that self-centered view itself is causing stress. The me who doesn't want to be stressed, the me who wants to avoid making mistakes, is causing the mind to be tight. Causing the mind, and that tightness then obscures the nimbleness, the creativity, and the clarity of the mind. It's just harder to be skillful because I want to be skillful. Does that make sense? And so this is how it's okay that we start this practice of a mindful awareness and you know we engage cause and effect from this self-centered point of view. I want to be master of the universe or at least master of my own mind, my own life. I want to learn how to navigate the twists and turns of my life without you know, causing myself a lot of stress. But in doing that, and doing that with a lot of integrity over a long time, we will eventually, the practice will naturally lead to the mind abandoning self-views, self-centered views, because they don't help. So this is very interesting, because a lot we hear in Buddhism, and there, I'm sure you could go to Amazon, and I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say there would probably be a thousand books that are about emptiness or the impersonal nature, anatta is the Pali word, the not-self characteristic, this aspect of the Buddhist teachings where he's saying that you can look, but you're not going to find a self there. You're not going to find a center. There's, you know, convention. In conventional terms, there's this Mark here, Mark Nunberg, that's my name. Right here, that's me. But when we observe in this direct, immediate way, we don't find the self that we constantly impute here and impute there and impute there. We project the idea that you're a self and I'm a self and we exist apart. But we don't actually find that. But the interesting thing is we don't have to believe in that We just need to cultivate mindful awareness, this continuous present moment awareness. Because in a very natural and impersonal way, self-view gets teased out of the mind. 
not because you're trying to tease self-view out of the mind. You're just, as a practitioner, we're just cultivating the stability of mindful awareness. Oh, this is being known. This is being known. It's like this. Sustaining present moment awareness, whether you're using sort of a formal meditation object like feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath going out, or using a more open awareness, open attention practice, where with when whatever happens to be predominant in that moment, the knowing mind knows this is being known. This is just a thinking being known, or judging mind being known, or knee pain being known, or cool breeze being known, or hearing being known. So whatever kind of practice we're doing, whether we're doing it in a formal meditation or informally throughout the day, that that the wisdom that develops from the continuity of awareness begins to see more and more that the proximate cause, the, the relevant cause for stress and release from stress is the attitude of the mind, how the mind is relating. And even underneath that is the underlying view, or you could say the underlying frame, the way the mind perceives experience, right? that then generates the attitude or the mood, that then generates your intentions and motivations and what you say and what you do and what you think. So it's basically, our practice will basically uncover when the mind is operating out of right view, as we might say, but right view in this sense means the mind isn't fixed on any view. And wrong view is the mind is fixed on a view. Like even being fixed on the view, I really want to practice mindfulness, or I really want to see the impersonal nature of everything. It's the fixedness of the view that your awareness, your wisdom and awareness, will see as the cause for being tight. Not the view that things are just nature, but a mind attaching to that view or being dependent on that view, hoping to get something from that view. That's what causes, that's what the mind sees is the cause for stress. This is from a really nice article. I think it's somewhere up on our website, maybe under resources now, called uh, Natural Buddhism by Gil Fransdahl, a West Coast teacher, wonderful teacher. And he's uh, reviewing some teachings, some early discourses from the Buddha before Buddhism was Buddhism, right? It was just a guy with some deep insight sharing what he had come to understand with other people who were interested And a lot of the terms and ways of speaking that we see later, you know, as the teachings of the Buddha got systematized and repeated, and they become a little bit, I don't know if distorted is maybe too strong of a word, but unnecessary things get added in, unnecessary structures. So in the early suttas, the Buddha made a big deal you know, he didn't he didn't reinforce too many points, but one of the points he reinforced over and over again in these early suttas is clinging to views is the cause for suffering. Not clinging to views is the characteristic 
of a wise and free human being. It's that simple. Clinging to views is the cause for suffering. Here's Gill writing. Finally, the goal of practice is, is described, he's talking about the Buddhist teachings now, the goal of practice is described in terms of letting go of views. Those who have realized the goal, the sages, are not attached to views, and so avoid debates, quarrels, and any conceit that their views are better than others. Well, that's sort of a provocative thing that makes us realize maybe we're not there yet. Right? How many times today did we think our view was better than somebody else's view? And now he's quoting um, one of these early discourses from the Buddha. They are not enemies of any doctrine. Right? He's talking about wise people. They're not enemies of any doctrine. Right? They don't construct themselves, they don't position themselves in opposition to other views. Because that's a view. They are not enemies of any doctrine, seen, heard, or thought out, not making up theories, not closed down, not desirous. They are sages, wise, who have laid down their burden. And there's one more quote here where he's quoting the Buddha that I thought was interesting. One who is attached gets into disputes over doctrines. Right? So one who's fixed on a view, attached to view, gets into disputes over doctrines. But how and with what would one dispute someone unattached? By not embracing or rejecting anything, a person has shaken off every view right here. Now, before somebody asks the question, I'll ask it, which is, how can I live my life that way? Or, or can I actually live my life that way, right? Not embracing or rejecting anything. A person has shaken off every view right here. So can we be a good citizen? Can we be a good partner, parent, worker, activist, without clinging to views? What would that look like? I think it's really um, enlivening to explore. Start in just places in your life that maybe aren't so challenging and just see if you can navigate your way in that place without fixed views. Like let's say you have a partner at home or even a pet at home or somebody you live with at home. And of course the habit is that we have a fixed view of who that person is. So just practice walking in the door, even as you're driving home and that person comes up in your mind. Practice holding whatever view you have, whatever image or projection you have about that person. Just practice holding it really lightly. It's like some teachers say to tag on, maybe not so. So you think, oh, they never do what they're supposed to do. Well, maybe not so. Or who knows is another good tag on. So when your mind, because the force of habit is going to keep playing itself out, especially if it's somebody you've lived with for 30 years or something like that. The opinions you have, the fixed ideas you have go deep. But you can add a new idea. Instead of trying to suppress the fixed ideas, just add another idea like, who knows? I really care about that person. Who knows? 
So glad that person's in my life. Who knows? So even with those so-called wholesome thoughts, just to keep it really loose, this country's going to hell. Who knows? (laughs) We're not saying that it's not going to hell. (laughs) But you see, it's, it's a different... It's, it's really a different way of being in the world. Death is bad. Who knows? Who knows? Is death bad? Who knows? It might be. So this is the thing about exploring. <clears throat> but first you want to just start correlating stress with fixed views. Right? Through the integrity, the stability of your awareness, continuity of your awareness, then when you feel stress, when your awareness picks up stress, okay, there's tightness in the body and mind, then just see in that moment, in those moments, if you can notice the correlation, you can even ask yourself, this is a useful question, what's the mind or what's the heart attached to? Or even make it a more open question, is the mind attached to anything here? And then you don't go looking, you're just in that space of open awareness, right? But now the mind is curious, like, is there any attachment here? Because I'm noticing things are tight. Honey, is there any attachment here? Is the mind wanting something? Is the mind afraid of something? Is the mind fixed on something? Oh, yeah. Then the correlation comes. And then there's a little learning. When there's this, there's that. When there's attachment or fixed view... The mind, the heart, the body feels constricted, tight. It's unworkable. The clarity's compromised. It's harder to be a skillful human being, all because of the contraction that comes with attachment. And then, same thing though, when you're feeling more open and the mind clear, connected, feel like that wholeness, then just to ask again, like, Is there any attachment? What's supporting this sense of space, this sense of equanimity, this more pervasive kind of love? What's supporting? And you'll see the absence of a fixed view. Because even if there's somebody taking that expansive state personally, it wouldn't be an expansive state. Like, oh, this is happening to me. That is not an expansive state. The idea, this is, or the attachment to the idea, this is happening to me. I'm really having a good sit, or I'm really in an an expansive space. So just with the continuity of awareness, we do this more subtle investigation of karma. Is it true, the point the Buddha really emphasized, that attachment to views, clinging to views, fixed views is the cause for suffering. Not having fixed views, not clinging to views, not clinging to anything is a cause for the release of that suffering. Freedom. Right? Freedom isn't a place, nibbana, nirvana, it isn't a place we go to. It's when the heart is liberated, is freed, of the activity of grasping. That makes it pretty close, doesn't it? I mean, 
Think about that. You know, we think, oh, the Buddha, you know, or you bring any saint to mind, you know, I probably two, three hundred lifetimes. And it, who knows? I mean, maybe it's two, three hundred lifetimes because we keep putting it off. But maybe it's actually as simple, as close as a moment of the heart, the mind, not grasping, not needing the moment to be different. See if you can just get a whiff of that right now, because hopefully, I'm I'm guessing for most of us right now, it's safe enough to relax right now and to let things be, even if you're feeling like you're not understanding anything I'm saying, to let that be, or you're feeling you're not getting it, to let that be, or you're really excited about getting it, or to let that be, just to keep putting down any attachment, any fixed view. So even when we do that to some degree, you see the idea that I'm a suffering human being begins to make less sense. Are we really, right now, a suffering being? Because I know from certain perspectives, we could really frighten ourselves. I know some people are really concerned, I'm among them, about what's happening in the world and in our country. And uh, so we can get all, maybe just my mentioning that is making you all sort of tight. (laughs) Or you might be really old, or you might be really sick, or you might be in the middle of a terrible breakup or job loss right now, or losing someone you love right now. But as we come, not, not avoiding any reality, but actually on purpose coming more and more into the reality of the present moment, not pushing anything away, but we're not talking to ourselves, we're not describing our reality, we're settling right in the middle of it. And do we see a suffering being when we really open? In order to open, we have to put down all of our fixed views. So is there a suffering being here? And this is, this is the exact work that the Buddha's teachings point to. We cultivate the stability of awareness with the stability or continuity of awareness. We observe, the wisdom in the mind observes better cause and effect, how the system gets tight, how the system releases. And then that work of understanding causes for stress, causes for release, gets more and more subtle, and it reveals what the Buddha said to us up front. The cause for stress is the attachment to views, especially the view of self, the idea of self. And the resolution of that stress is the abandoning of the need to cling, to be attached. And then it's for us to explore that. We don't have to, like this is the advantage of having the pointing out instructions from the Buddha. We can begin immediately to experiment with living our life free of attachment, free of clinging to views. And just see, can I live my life? Can I actually navigate the different responsibilities that I have without being attached? 
I, I can't tell you how much freedom there is in my relationship with my spouse in moments, <laughs> not <laughs> continuously, but in moments when I realize I don't have to be attached to my views, her views, anybody's views. It's so liberating. And to not have any idea how it's going to play out, too. It's so alive. Even, you know, we've been together since 1991. It's a long time now. And it can feel so fresh and alive and wonderful. And, you know, as those of you who are in the relationships, it can also feel very ossified at times and heavy and like this again, you know, banging her head against the same issue or something like that. But those moments are much more tolerable in our life, you know, where life feels really contracted and falling into fixed views, when we know that there's another possibility, right? Because then I'm interested in the fixedness of it because the mind knows it's not as stuck, it's not as fixed, it's not as dark as it appears to be. And that's especially useful at this time in the world where there, I mean, maybe there's not more uncertainty than usual. It's hard to say. At least in our little bubble of Minneapolis, you know, there seems to be more uncertainty. And, uh, but it's really useful not to get swept away with our ideas. Like we, the mind paints a picture and then it attaches to that as some kind of truth. And then we react as if that picture that we're attached to is some truth. And so we feel justified in being mean, being tight, being angry, being hateful, being dismissive, closing down, being in denial, thinking we need chocolate (laughs) just to get through the day. I stared that one down earlier today. But the day's not over. <laughs> anyway, there's 15 minutes left. It'd be nice to hear from some folks today. And I think, Alan, do you have the mic or somebody? Oh, Colleen has the mic, so raise your hand. Remember, you have to point it right at your mouth, and closer is better. I think somebody over here. Yeah. Your own thoughts from your practice or questions that you might have. Hi, my name's John. Um, there's this blog I like to read called Brain Pickings, and I was looking through sort of this. Um, she had uh, a piece that was like 10 learnings from 10 years of brain pickings, and um, she had uh, one of her points was, the the author of the blog's points was that, um, or one of her tips, I guess, was like, allow yourself the uncomfortable luxury of changing your mind. And I guess that kind of set me down the path towards um, the fixed view philosophy you're talking about tonight. And um, I'm, I'm interested to know what you have to say um, about this idea. But I, I, um, I think for a long time, I thought of not having fixed views as like, kind of like never having views and now I'm sort of more thinking about it as oh like I always have views but they get to change and I don't have to like cement them into place at any time they can be fluid so yeah and the the other piece that's so provocative provocative about that too is 
not feeling obliged to oppose other people's views. Yeah. Because we know that it's fluid. Whether they know it's fluid or not, we know it's just a construction. And, uh, and that there are causes for that person having that view right now. And this is, again, another really important point about what's happening in our country, like how we can uh, become a more harmonious people here. One thing that's missing is our tendency is to meet fixed views with fixed views. But we always think it's the other person's fault. They have a fixed view, and so of course I'm going to have a fixed view to oppose, to oppose what they're trying to make happen. But they're just feeding off of each other. So to really explore not fixing on a view. But it doesn't mean we don't act and do, because action doesn't need to come out of a fixed view. Action can come out of, it's like, what stops action? Like, sometimes we think we need to have, be certain, even if we're not certain, we pretend that we're certain, in order to do something like, I'm certain I want to marry this person. Well, we're not certain. No one's really certain. But we can tell ourselves enough times that we're certain. But you don't have to pretend you're certain in order to get married or start going out with somebody or, you know, do whatever other people, other things people do. Life just keeps happening. You'll, you'll make choices whether you pretend you're certain about the choice or not. Just watch, you know. Oh, isn't this interesting? I'm opening the fridge again, you know. <laughs> I'm texting that person, you know. The motivations, the forces are there. We can just be the observer. I know it sounds a little weird, but we can be the observer of this very natural, amazing thing we call our life. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, please. Right here. It's nice to say your names, if you don't mind. I'm Eric. <clears throat> so what I kept going through my mind as you were talking about this is the Buddhist monk sitting in the square immolating himself. And how does that how does that relate to not having a fixed view? Because he it seems that he was probably fairly certain of this action. Oh, I'm not, I, I would guess they're probably not certain that that action's going to be, you know, transforming. But let's just take the best scenario that the person who does that, you probably, some people know from the Vietnam War, there were several examples of public examples of this. And then more recently, there have been at least a couple in Tibet, um, Tibetan monks, uh, um, in opposition to the Chinese occupation. But uh, so in the best scenario, why couldn't something like that flow out of love? Not a fixed view that it's going to make a difference, but just this powerful movement of love that I want to do something. Or there, you know, th- this seems like a beautiful offering because it does wake people up. You know, when those pictures, like some of us are old enough to remember the Vietnam War, the newscast of the Vietnam War, and when those things were reported, it's like shocking that somebody, you know, it's like, even as a kid, I mean, I wasn't that old, you know, I don't know, maybe 12 or so. And uh, 
But what I what came to my what I remember my mind is like there's a lot here I don't understand about this. Like the story that's being told to me is not the whole story. That somebody would do this, that means there's something I don't understand. And that kind of humility, that's a beautiful gift, act of generosity. And for somebody who has maybe made a serious dent in fear, right, so that they're taking their own life in that way is not an act of, you know, hatred about the world or I'll show you, you know. It isn't a self-view. It isn't coming from, it doesn't have to come from a, a fixed view. No, it might. We don't know. We don't know what was going on in that person's head. But I can imagine it coming from love. I mean, it's a pretty extreme act of love, but that was a pretty extreme, those are pretty extreme situations that feel, when things are swirling toward hell and nobody has a right mind, sometimes the act of love will, needs to be really shocking to wake people up. You know, the other sort of more superficial example is when someone's losing it, you know, somebody slaps them, not because they hate the person, but because the person has lost their right mind and they need some sort of jolt to sort of like, oh my God, oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> and so these sort of acts of love can be that way. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Over here. Uh, my name is Mike. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, in in terms of fixed views, aren't there some views that are as close to fixed as could be? For example, uh, racism is bad. Wouldn't wouldn't that be almost a a fixed view? Well. But- it's, it's like uh, when we see karma, cause and effect, like when we throw somebody out of our heart, that activity itself crunches the heart. But we don't need to fix it as a view. It's like I burnt my hand on the stove. I don't need a fixed view. It's sort of built into the mind that that's not helpful to touch a hot stove. It's not helpful to hate for whatever reason or to throw people out of our heart for whatever reason. So we don't, and this is like what can happen in uh, issues around racial justice or any kind of social change. People who see the wrong of racial injustice, for example, but don't catch that their attachment, their hate, their certainty is itself crunching Forget what it does in the wider world. It's crunching their own heart. It's obscuring their own mind, the clarity in their own mind. So we can be very, the mind can be very clear about cause and effect, about how life works, how hate doesn't work, without constructing a view that we fix on. Right? And it wouldn't mean that somebody wouldn't say, you know, uh, racial hatred is not only destructive for the community, it's destructive, destructive for the person who has racial hatred. But you don't need to construct a view for that to be true. You don't have to have the idea. And this is, you know, this is what is so, 
difficult at this time when there's this is just a lot more on the surface. What do we do? This is like a whole study in itself. What do we do when we see somebody acting out racism? And how can how can that action really be? Can that action be effective without a fixed view? Can we be nimble on our feet in how we respond, not acting out of fear, some my responsibility that they're a racist, or you know any kind of fixed view? I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make this person different. You know, or this person's an idiot. They're a racist. You know. Because a lot of the reason we're in the place we're in, this divisive place, is because we are all operating to a large degree with fixed views. And if we want to liberate all of us from this divisive place, we need to know how to operate more and more in this place without fixed views. And to gain confidence, just start in some place in your life living with less of a fixed view. And you'll gain confidence it's a better way. It's more useful. We're more creative in causing transformation than when we rely on fixed views. Yeah. Time for one more comment. Yeah, Andy, please. You know, my daughter recently uh, said to me, and I don't know where she came up with this, but she said, when I kind of go off, just put, touch my shoulder or my arm and say compassion. And um, made me think of that when you said, you know, a slap can get you out of something. Just, you know, the touching and the love. Even if you, you know, don't know the person and it's not really going to exactly change their behavior, they'll, they'll come out, you know, it'll come through their life sometime you know, thinking of compassion and what does it mean to them? Yeah. Because isn't it true, from what Andy said, and and especially from her own direct experience, isn't it true that our direct, immediate observation of how life works, that love works, softening, feeling connected, even connected to what's messy and evil or bad, you know, but not throwing the situation or anybody out of our heart. Hasn't life taught us that our response, our way of being in those moments when our mind is sort of moving out of love, operating out of love, that that's the way? So then to, like, even in the bigger picture, the political picture or other problematic areas of our life, so... Can we imagine operating out of love? And can we really cultivate that as the motive force in how we are in the world? Whether we're talking about our business work or our family work or our activist work in the wider community. Yeah. And that's, that's the alternative to a fixed view. Just the movement of love. And the thing about love is it's always moment to moment. It doesn't, it's not like, oh yeah, I love my wife, so there, that's a fixed view. It's like, we shouldn't even use the word love, we should use loving. You know, it's sort of a, it's a way of being or a way of relating. 
And really, love, what that means is we're letting everything in. We're letting it in. We're not demonizing the world. It is our world this way. We're letting it in. And so then our response comes from that, the integrity of that connection instead of some fixed idea that, no, I can't let this in. No, I'm not saying this is easy, and I'm definitely not saying that I can do this. But I definitely aspire to doing this, and to the degree I can do this, I really see it works. We need to leave it here, so let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Perhaps we can discover kind of intimacy and love for no good reason right here and now. Not something idealistic, but something real. Just a willingness of the heart to be open. So wishing us all safety, especially those in our community that are probably feeling more threatened these days. There was a young man who came up after the Sunday night program who is one of those many people who are in this uh, very uncertain place with their visa, longtime community member. A lot of people in our immediate community and in our wider community we're probably experiencing a lot of fear and uncertainty. So we're holding them, wishing them well, and learning not to be afraid to be right in the middle. And so thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.